healthcare on I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I appreciate your support. I host the show and I've been doing this for a long time. It's always a pleasure to be with you in the air, on the air, and to discuss a variety of healthcare topics. And today I host the infamous Dr. Rana McKay to discuss recent updates in GU oncology. We talk about the recent ASCO-GU meeting, what was presented in prostate cancer, in urothelial cancer, in kidney cancer, and in rare tumors. The ASCO-GU meeting that occurred on February 2022 was a hybrid meeting in San Francisco and was great. A lot of science and many folks were there and we just had a blast. There's a guest appearance on this show. I'm not going to tell you who it is. You have to listen and watch the show to know who the guest appearance is. And by the way, I really would love for you to subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review. By doing so, you will make the show accessible and easy to find to many of your friends and colleagues. And if you are a listener to the show and a big supporter of the show, please let me know so I could send you a free famous podcast t-shirt. I will say the t-shirt sensation because a lot of folks are liking these t-shirts. You can also visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. And do not forget to visit my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or follow me on Instagram, Chadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, Dr. Rana McKay on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, folks, here she is again, the one and only Dr. Rana McKay, who is coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. It is always, always such a pleasure to, to, to host uh, Rana on the podcast. I, I've told you this before off the air, and I want to say it on the air. I always learn from you um, a lot, and it's just always such a, such a pleasure to have you. But for, you know, there are a few folks who probably don't know who you are. Very few, very few, not a lot. Most people know who you are, but for the few who don't know who you are, tell us about yourself. Tell us a little bit uh, where you practice. And I'm very curious. I got to tell them what got you. You're a runner. So how, you know, I mean, did you, were you always a runner? How did this happen? Oh, this is a funny story. So um, I'm a GU medical oncologist at uh, UC San Diego, and I've been running since I was in middle school. And this is it actually all comes down to good mentorship. And uh, I didn't really play youth sports or did any of that, you know, stuff when I was younger. I think we were just, you know, immigrated to the US and really just focused on school. And, you know, in PE, you have to run the mile each PE each week, you have to run the mile. So I would just run the mile as fast as I could every single time I would run the mile during school, like during middle school, like I was in sixth grade and I would just run as fast as I can. And so one of the teachers, one of the coaches, elderly lady, Miss Adams, I still remember her was like, you're really good at this. Like you should join the track team. Like, why don't you come out and join? And I was like, I didn't know anything about sports. I didn't, I didn't know how to do anything with a ball. I was totally, but you know, she got me into track and cross country and the rest is history and it became something it's like I love doing it so now it's my way to you know refresh repower recharge for the week you I I do I do see your posts about your running on Sunday but do you run every day or just every Sunday uh so Sunday is my long run so I do a half marathon plus every Sunday and then hold on (laughs) I think I, this is not going to be a GU Oncology podcast at this point. <laughs> Half a marathon every Sunday? Every Sunday, yeah. Unless I'm training for something longer. So I usually do a half marathon every Sunday. I run with my, with my daughter, with my stroller. If you're listening to this, you people, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> but I, I generally, so I run on Wednesdays and Sundays. And then all the other days I, I work out, do resistance. I take Friday mornings off. Unless something in the week is happening that I, yeah. So you must have run marathons. Yes. 
And how yes. many marathons have you run? Ah, uh, I don't uh like six maybe somewhere around my first marathon i ran when i was in med school right on, I had, let me tell you something <laughs> you are an orthopedic surgeon dream comes true you're like i'm sure like everyone's like handing them your card because easy on the knees come on it's it's not that i don't know it's uh it's marathons yes i mean it's but if you train right and you do resistance training and you train your muscles you know, you can't just be running. You can't just have running be the only thing you do. Then you're going to get hurt. So I, I which at, I did. I, I did that. <laughs> I was at Asco GU. You weren't. And I was thinking if Rana was at Asco GU, would she actually be running of these hills? I mean, you know, San Francisco is like those like steep hills up yes. and down. And uh, in your prior Asco GUs, did you actually, did you, did you run? I did. So I would generally run to pier what is it pier one uh -huh. over there and then run all around the marina but then you know i wouldn't necessarily run through the streets just because it's there's too much traffic too many too much stop and start i don't like stopping and starting but yeah okay so, well uh, you know um you just inspired me to do not to run because um i actually hate running because i think it shows how uh my endurance is bad <laughs> <laughs> but you, uh, could, it's, you could practice so but, uh what you inspired me is to have a, a podcast episode on um what activities do physicians do to reduce burnout because i i actually yes. do think there you know some people run others do i mean there's probably a variety of things and i think it would be a nice episode to host a few people now you're you you're um you're at the dana farber before ucsd that's correct. Yeah, I was at the Farber, um, did my fellowship there and was on faculty for a couple of years. With this dude, uh, Tony Schwery? With this dude, Tony Schwery, that's right. And actually a lot of people because it's, you know, Tony is was one of my mentors there. At, yeah. You know, Mary Ellen as well. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Jeff Shapiro got me into early phase one work. Phil Kantoff. I mean, there's so many wonderful people there that um, continue to be my mentors to this day. I feel like I'll never stop calling those individuals, my mentors. But now you are mentoring a lot of people, and I know a few of them that you've, you've, you're doing an amazing job mentoring them. So, so thank you for all you're doing. And um, today I wanted just to talk a little bit about um, ASCO GU. I think the um, we're, we're going to air this episode before the end of March, sometime in a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, there were, I know you weren't able to be there in person, but um, I know that you were on every single session for those three days. So a lot of things um, uh, were presented, but in this podcast, I want to focus a little bit on things that uh, clinically relevant. So maybe have a little bit more of a clinical application um, and maybe things that were a little bit, um, you know, uh, intrigued you that may not be really clinically relevant, but really intrigued you. And, and there was one presentation you actually did that I, I loved as well. But uh, let's try to divide this into like, you know, few on prostate, few on renal, and few on, uh, on urothelial. Um, where do you want to start? Maybe we start with prostate. We'll go, we'll go in order. We'll go like, uh, you know. I, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We and always up for debate prostate. whether the order should be changed. <laughs> what, why do you, you know, I saw like, uh, I think, was it, I think I saw Betsy Plymac was posting a, a, po a poll yeah. Asking whether you want the order to change. What where how did this come about? Like why do people were thinking of changing the order? I don't know. It's um I think kidney is always on the last day. So by the time kidney comes around, you know, we're down to like, you know, <laughs> tired. 20% of the, the the you know audience members, but it's um, you know, True. I don't have a preference one way or another because I'm there the whole time. But um True. True. Okay. Let's get started with Thursday prostate. Um, prostate. What, so, uh, what, what struck your interest? So if we're talking about practice changing trials, I think from the prostate session, we can't help but mention the ARISENS data. So I think this was hands down, um, you know, definitely practice changing, global randomized, double blind, placebo control phase three trial that was designed for metastatic um, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer patients who were, um, you know, candidates for docetaxel, um, ECOG performance zero to one. They were randomized one to one 
to receive ADT plus docetaxel plus minus darolutamide, and it was a placebo-controlled trial. And I think what's unique about the design of this study that's a little bit uh, different than the design of, for example, Enzimet and some of the other, uh, you know, androgen targeting pathway inhibitors is this trial mandated docetaxel use in both treatment arms. And um, the primary endpoint was overall survival. And um, the study was positive, you know, as a like, not to say slam dunk positive, but hazard ratio for risk reduction was 0 0.68. Um, so I think what's interesting is to put this data in context to piece one, which was recently presented at ESMO, which looked at the addition of abiraterone to ADT plus docetaxel. And, you know, as now we're thinking about what's happening in the hormone sensitive space, we're now moving from, you know, we've moved away from single agent ADT alone to ADT plus one plus something, whether it be DOSI or ABI or ENZA or APA. And now we're moving into ADT plus DOSI plus either APA or DARA based on the PIECE1 data, based on the AeroSense data. So we're moving into you know, treatment intensification, more intense treatment intensification, certainly for these, those patients that are um, metastatic hormone sensitive. And I think what's a little bit also unique about AeroSense is um, it did enroll patients who were not necessarily de novo at initial presentation. So there was like, you know, I don't know, 13, not a large number of patients, but patients were enrolled that were not um, necessarily metastatic up front. But I think it's practice changing, you know? But let, you know, Rana, you know about this data from, I forgot who, who the author is, um, but it was actually even my, my own real world experience when I was seeing patients. Despite the charted data that was positive, there were a lot of patients that were really not receiving docetaxel. Uh, and whether it was because genuinely they were really not candidates for dosi or simply because the field did not embrace it and they felt, okay, fine, you know, I don't need to add dosi to it. I can do it later on. Do you think that this result might change what we have been observing in the real world? So my hope is that it does. I think what will likely end up happening is that the community that is of the believer of the belief that people should be intensified, I think that community will probably further intensify. But you know, I think the community that is maybe, you know, for those patients that are just receiving single agent like ADT alone, I think we really need to understand like why is that? You know, is it is it a physician thing? Is it physician preference? Is it patient goals of care? You know, um, are these people that are, you know, had this long history of prostate cancer with presenting with initial disease, then biochemical recurrence, and they sort of ease into M1 disease. So I think we need to better understand why that is. And I think we need to educate around, um, you know, I think prostate cancer is certainly a multidisciplinary practice with urologists and radiation oncologists and medical oncologists. So I think we need to just try to better understand that. And, you know, these data, you can't argue, you can't argue the data, you know, that people do derive benefit, but, you know, it's all about goals of care when it comes to prostate cancer, honestly. And I'm realizing I freeze every so often, but don't worry about it. That's what happens every so often with, with this particular uh, computer. But um, this data was dosi ADT plus uh, you know, agent X versus placebo. Um, but, but you know, a lot, a lot, I mean, you alluded to this earlier, um, a, a lot of patients receive ABI or ENZA as opposed to DOSI. So um, does this trial mean if you decide to use DOSI, you should add this agent, but if you decide to use ABI or ENZA, you're just doing ABI or ENZA, right? Well, I think if we, you know, the question to be had is what is the contribution of dosi in this context? 
And, you know, I think Neeraj and others have, have put it out there that, you know, maybe one of the additional studies that needs to get conducted is everybody gets the AR targeting therapy, whether it be darolutamide or whether it be Abby, and that is the consistent agent in both arms. And then the randomization is to DOSI. To, to understand what is the contribution of each of these components, what, you know, what, what, what is the contribution from each of these components, basically? So we point. don't necessarily have that data. That, that's a good idea. Is this, you think this is going to be a study or just a thought right now in the G community? I don't know. I think it's a thought that's gain, certainly gaining traction. Um, but, uh, you know, what's going to be the best mechanism to do a large study like that? Like, is it through the cooperative groups? Um, you know, what is, what is the right platform for us to kind of yeah. run a study that answers that question? Okay. What else do you, have you gotten, have you got for prostate? For prostate. Oh, well, who can, who can deny the uh, exciting um, propel and magnitude data <laughs> that were presented? Good name, at good name, the magnitude. I mean, and the propel, I mean, you know. You, I know. Uh, well, that's exactly what it was. A lot of, a lot of magnanimous uh, excitement on the stage at GU ASCO. So I think, um, you know, maybe we can go through Propel and then we can go yep. through Magnitude. And I, I think we're all still scratching our heads a little bit and we all are itching for more data. And so hopefully that'll come over the subsequent, you know, Congresses and everything. So Propel was a randomized double-blind phase three trial. It was designed in the frontline MCRPC setting. Patients were allowed to have received docetaxel for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, but they weren't allowed to have received, you know, prior ABI and other NHTs were allowed if they were stopped greater than 12 months prior to enrollment. And patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive Olaparib plus abiraterone versus placebo plus abiraterone with a primary endpoint of radiographic progression-free survival. There was no upfront stratification based on HRR gene alteration status. And this was really an all-comer, unselected population with regards to HRR. Now, when the baseline characteristics were presented, um, you know, about a quarter of patients were symptomatic and were, or, and or using opiates. So it's something to consider. About 22% of patients had received prior docetaxel. And the HRR status was determined retrospectively. And I think there was some controversy and some confusion around how that was determined. It was largely determined, you know, they collected both tissue and cell-free DNA. And the default was tissue, which was available for determination around 70% of patients. And in the setting where tissue wasn't available, cell-free DNA was used to come up with HRR status. So cell-free DNA wasn't used for everybody on the trial, but it was a mix of the two. And about 27, 28, somewhere in there, percent of patients were HRR positive and the arms were balanced. But the study was, positive for its primary endpoint, which was RPFS reduction by investigator assessment in the total cohort, independent of mutation status. So the RPFS was 24.8 months for the combo versus 16.6 months with you know, the, well, the hazard ratio 0.66. Mm -hmm. And that aligned with blinded independent review. We didn't see the Kaplan-Meier data um, for the HRR positive or negative, we just saw kind of the four spots get thrown up. And it seemed like both the HRR mutated and non-mutated benefited, but the hazard ratios were 0 0.5, 0 0.76. So we've got the Propel data, positive trial for PFS, still way too early for OS and an unselected population. So Rana, can you just for, for listeners who may not, I mean, just maybe put that into context because I think <clears throat> I think a lot of folks, maybe since the profound data, they were a little bit more of the camp that 
that you really you if you want to use a a PARP inhibitor, you usually must have something like a, a mutation or BRCA or or something to suggest that you will benefit. But this study did not look at this prospectively. Anybody could could get on. What's the context there? Is that was there a sense that you know patients would benefit from this regardless? So I think that's why the trial was designed. Now, I think mechanistically for why we think there is synergy between elaparib and abiraterone, I think how there's crosstalk between the AR pathway and the DNA repair pathway and does do drugs like abiraterone give some sort of molecular you know, genotype that could make for a, I hate to use the word brachinus, but make somebody BRCA like we, I mean, we don't have like really good mechanistic data for why this would be the case. I think people are kind of skeptical of, of this data. You know what I mean? And then when we put up the magnitude data, which was a similar trial, but they prospectively upfront determined the HRR status. They had a, it was basically two trials in one magnitude. It was an HRR positive trial cohort and then an HRR negative. And within those two cohorts, there was a randomization to niraparib and placebo. So it was in essence, two parallel phase threes, one in a prospectively defined biomarker positive cohort and one in a prospectively defined biomarker negative cohort. And in essence, the biomarker negative cohort was negative. It met, it did not pass, you know, it was basically deemed futile at the futility analysis and did not move forward. So what was largely reported was the data from the HRR positive cohort. And so these data were presented that were almost like in opposition of one another, where you've got one study that basically showed there was no benefit in the biomarker negative group, but there was a benefit with regards to PFS and the biomarker positive. Propel, we really didn't get into any granular data around biomarker status other than you know, what was thrown up in a forest plot where there seemed to be a signal in both groups, but you know we don't have granular data, but the overall study was positive. And so I think everybody's scratching their heads. Yeah. I think, you know, regarding what, I, I don't think these data are practice changing, like as they stand now. I think we need way more information as to who are these people, what is gonna be the impact on overall survival. Um, you know, I think the messaging is certainly not to stop doing testing and just, do things in combination. And I, I have to say the other thing about these trials is they're somewhat outdated, right? Because these trials did not necessarily, or at least propel um, only about a third of patients, or what I say, 20% of patients got dosy. So the rest of the 75% of patients were not treatment intensified for metastatic hormone sensitive. So it's like, who's going to actually do this in clinical practice? Like these are people who never got intensified for hormone sensitive disease. And now we're going to intensify with Abby and Elaborate for first-line CRPC. Like, who's going to do that? Like, you know what I mean? It's um, it's somewhat yeah, but, outdated. But, but, you know, I mean, going back to our earlier discussion about the use of dosi in metastatic hormone sensitive, um, I'll tell you, I mean, I'm still skeptical whether um, in the real world, again, where a lot of these patients are being seen, in community oncology, I don't know if you're going to see significant uptake in dosi uh, in in hormone sensitive. Yeah. I do think you'll see more uptake in the abbeys and the enzas because there's a sense they're easier right. for chemotherapy. But we'll have to see. Time will tell. Yeah, I think we'll have to see. You know, it's like it's like the you know the data are so robust for hormone sensitive about treatment intensification. And I get somebody's rationale for not doing it. But then these data as they stand, like I, I don't think it's gonna shift that practice of I didn't intensify in this setting, but now based on this data, I am gonna intensify and add elaborate. <laughs> like is that person that didn't intensify for hormone sensitive, is this enough to convince them to intensify for first line CRPC? Well, that's, that's, why we're do, that's why we're doing this podcast. So we can <laughs> You know, and and um, but let me ask you this: Was this uh, how were they checking HRR? Was this blood as well? Um, it was blood and tissue. Um, okay. Yeah, 
Okay. And for this study, I think what was also different from Propel is because they prospectively, prospectively defined HRR status, they allowed patients to start the Abbey, um, you know, prior to enrollment or, you know, prior to arm allocation. I think, you know, patients were allowed to enroll if they had received, you know, with Abiraterone within four months, you know, so there was kind of this lead in time with Abbey. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I recall uh, watching these presentations and lots of back and forth and a discussion. I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, you put that into context, especially from a practice changing perspective, because, you know, I mean, technically, they're both positive studies. But uh, it's important to put in context and whether this changes uh, practice or not. What yeah. else we've got for prostate? We've got Propel, we've got Magnitude and Aerosense. Aerosense. I think the other, the other study that was presented, um, not to spend too much time on it, was the Preside trial. So this was a randomized double-blind placebo control phase three that looked at the efficacy and safety of continuing enzalutamide in chemo-naive patients with CRPC and then treating them with, you know, docetaxel plus, you know, uh, prednisone. So in essence, it was people that were progressing on Enza and then randomizing them to continuing Enza with dosi or just placebo plus dosi. So it's kind of looking at the continuation of Enza post-progression. It's a good and question. Problem, yeah. Good question. And uh, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Um, the uh, study met its primary endpoint. Um, the hazard ratio was uh, 0.72 and looked to be statistically significant. Um, you know, so uh, whether this is, again, practice changing, it's, it's hard to know, um, but in kind of opens up the question of, okay, if somebody's progressing on Enza, they haven't seen chemo, you're going to add in dosi, should I just layer in the dosi and keep the Enza going instead of stopping, instead of switching? You I know, think, I think it's a pragmatic question. And I yeah. bet you in the real world, a lot of people are doing that. They're continuing yeah. just adding. So, so you, so at least the trial suggests that you can keep the Enza and add the dosi. Basically, instead of just stopping the Enza and switching to dosi. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, UGU oncologists have become pretty creative in the how you name the trials. You've got Preside, Magnitude, Propel. I mean, you're you're up there. Okay, what else do you have? <laughs> so those are kind of the key studies for prostate, I think, that were presented in oral okay. abstract. Um, where do you want to shift to? You want to go to bladder? You want to go to kidney? There's there was also a couple of studies that were presented for some rare histologies as well. Um, yeah, we, well, let's let's do let's do uh, Friday, which is will be urothelial. Yep. And uh, and see what you've got. All right. So Friday, um, I think the one of the big presentations was given by uh, Petros Grivas on the Trophy um, 01 trial from cohort three. See what I and mean? This... Trophy. <laughs> I mean, this is. Like, is there a note? Okay, go ahead. I don't, I don't know how you get trophy with, with, I don't know what letters come together for trophy, but this was a trial looking at sasituzumab in combination with pembrolizumab in patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma that were, um, that have had progression on a prior platinum therapy. And as we know, just as a reminder, uh, sasituzumab is a first-in-class trope 2 ADC antibody drug conjugate, and it's actually already FDA approved um, for use um, in the refractory setting. And so here we get data for, these are patients that were uh, checkpoint inhibitor naive that had received a platinum. And uh, the primary endpoint was objective response rate and um, you know, we saw an objective response rate of around 34% um, with this combination. You know, it's, you know, single arm, uh, median follow-up of 5.8 months from the data, but um, it's impressive, 34%, I think, in the platinum refractory setting. Um, you know, the regimen seemed to be fairly well tolerated. Um, and, you know, as we think about uh, kind of the different subgroups, um, you know, there did 
whether the patients had visceral metastases or not, and even based on Belmont criteria, there seemed to be a benefit. So I think now we're seeing these ADCs being used in combination. Um, so the other um, ADC that I think you know is FDA approved is um, Enfortimab Vidotin. We've seen really encouraging data of EV with Pembro um, as well, <clears throat> to the point that actually there's a frontline study in bladder in cis-eligible patients looking at the combo compared to cis-eligible, which is, or um, compared to cis-platinum. So that's like bold. That's like, you know, you're playing Muhammad Ali there. You know what I mean? Because cis-platinum is like, remained king in queen, I should say, right? In, in uh, urothelial carcinoma with regards to the frontline setting. And so this phase three is looking at investigating this combination in the frontline um, for cis eligible patients. Yes, that is actually intriguing, but, but let me ask you just to back up a little bit. So, so right now, before ASCO-GU, this ASCO-GU, the way you would treat uh, metastatic bladder cancer, you would give platinum-based therapy for platinum-eligible folks. And then, yeah, is there a role so, for maintenance therapy in these patients? Oh, yeah. So I think for first line, what the standard is, if they're cis-platinum-eligible, they get cis-platinum plus maintenance of ulibab. If they're cis-platinum-ineligible, the standard really is carbo-based chemo followed by a ulibab maintenance. If they're platinum ineligible, they can't get chemo, then you can use a checkpoint inhibitor regardless of pdl one status. Right. So the reason I ask is because when this trial, these patients received Pembro, I mean, I guess- They received chemo, but not a checkpoint inhibitor. Right. So, yeah. so the, technically they did not receive, I mean, I know that, I guess- um, it doesn't apply the data of this trial, the, the trophy trial that Petros provided won't apply to folks who would receive maintenance uh, therapy, avilumab after. That's correct. Okay. What, what's your impression since the data um, with maintenance avilumab have been presented? Have you seen uh, like wider adoption in the community? Um, I have. I mean, I think it's, again, sort of more intensification. I think it's, um, you know, certainly I've adopted that practice in, in my uh, practice. I mean, I think it's certainly making people live longer. Um, I think that paradigm of maintenance of Ulamab, you're kind of, you're self-selecting for those good actors. You know, it's patients who've had CRPR or SD on upfront, you know, chemotherapy. And then, you know, they finish off their chemotherapy um, and then, you know, you put them on maintenance therapy, you sort of kind of weeded out the people who are kind of the primary progressors, you yeah. know, yeah. but, um, but it, it's fair. Is it fair to say that this trial, it's just like hypothesis generating at this point. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's still early days. It's yeah. still early days. All right. But the, these data were presented. I think another study that's worthwhile um, highlighting, you know, this is, just kind of sharing the um, presentations that were presented in the oral abstract session. So EV103 um, uh, cohort H uh, data were presented by uh, Dan Petrolak and <laughs> EV103 is a large phase one, uh, two study that looked at multiple different um, regimens of EV in combination with various agents. And cohort H of this study was looking at EV in the um, neoadjuvant setting. So these were patients who were cisplatinum ineligible. They had T2 to T4 N0 disease. Um, it allowed upper tracts and urothelial tumors to enroll. Uh, patients had to have a predominant urothelial histology. And again, these are cis ineligible. They received three cycles of EV monotherapy given on a 21-day cycle. So day one, day eight, every 21 days, three cycles, and then underwent cystectomy with a lymph node dissection. And the primary endpoint here was PATH-CR. We know data um, validating PATH-CR in um, you know, uh, urethelial carcinoma kind of being a uh, surrogate for OS. 
and um, pathologic complete response, you know, being predictive of good outcomes. So all the patients underwent central review. Um, and I will say this is not a lot of patients. There was the data that was presented was presented on 22 patients. So again, this is still early days, certainly provocative, but the pathologic complete response rate was 36%. And the pathologic downstaging rate, so patients with T1, YPT1 or, or below, um, was 50%. So I think it's very intriguing. Um, you know, uh, there are other cohorts that are also going to be looking at EV in combination with PEMBRO. And there's a series of, of studies that are looking at non-platinum approaches for cis-platinum ineligible patients in the neoadjuvant setting. Um, so I think intriguing, but still early days. Excellent. I, 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 I have a feeling in five years we may... We may not need, we may not use the, the queen or the king anymore in your, yeah. <laughs> okay. What else you have in bladder or your thelium? So other things in bladder. So, uh, uh, Jonathan Rosenberg presented the data from the, uh, bio trial, bio, not really sure how to pronounce it, <laughs> but a randomized phase two, um, that was looking at Dervalumab plus Olaparib versus Dervalumab plus placebo for patients that had um, basically um, advanced unresectable urothelial carcinoma. This was in the treatment naive setting and patients were ineligible to receive um, platinum-based chemotherapy. Um, and I think there's just been a lot of controversy around PARP inhibition in bladder and PARP inhibition in unselected versus selected patients in bladder. Um, the strat factors on this trial inc included HRR status, you know, mutant versus wild type, and also the uh, Bajoran risk index. The primary endpoint was um, PFS. And I think as we summarize the data, in essence, for the intent to treat population, everybody on the trial, the trial was essentially negative. The PFS 4.2, 4 3.5, hazard ratio 0.94, not statistically significant. But in a pre-planned analysis in the HRR mutated group, <laughs> we do see a signal of benefit. PFS was 5.6 months compared to 1.8 months with a hazard ratio that was 0.18, which was statistically significant. I think what's striking is just how poorly the HRR mutated group did. I mean, a PFS of 1.8 months, like they just like, you know, the Kaplan-Meier curve is just like lines plummeting to the x-axis, you know, but this kind of raised a signal of, okay, in, in mutated patients is the addition of a lap rib something that should be, you know, investigated. Um, interesting. So, yeah, interesting study. I think the, the other study that was kind of presented at the uh, same in the same session was the final analysis from the uh, Atlantis trial of Rucaparib. This is uh, uh, Simon Grab Crab presented these data, um, looking at Rucaparib versus placebo, and this study was designed in DRD positive patients. So unlike the bio trial there that we just referenced, where it was unselected and there was a you know pre-specified subgroup analysis. Um, this was in just in the um, selected patients. Yeah. And in essence, um, this trial did demonstrate an extension in uh, progression-free survival, um, you know, when you're looking at rucaparib versus placebo. Um, so there's a signal there for the potential of PARP inhibition and in HR mutated bladder cancer, but there's been other trials that, that have been conducted, um, you know, and, and others that are underway. So, you know, not to say, I think the jury is kind of still out, but, you know, as we're applying precision medicine in practice, you know, whether those that have HR mutations and, and I think we need to understand, you know, is it like in prostate where the benefit is largely in the BRCA1-2 or is it everybody like, 
How do you define it, HRR? It's also, it's also interesting. I mean, we've talked about the prostate and you had two studies with two different PARP inhibitors. <clears throat> We're now talking about urothelial and also we've got a couple of trials with two different PARP inhibitors. Is your sense that these PARP inhibitors, although they are all PARP inhibitors as a category, is there a reason to think that one of them actually is more potent than another, better than another? I mean, is there, I mean, they're all worth yeah. the same, no? Yeah, I mean, I think that they, I don't necessarily think that one is, is better than the other per se, but they do have different potencies. And we know that with PARP inhibition, that a lot of the effect is dose dependent. And then they do all have slightly different, you know, ability to, to trap PARP uh, and act as PARP trappers. So I don't think that all PARP inhibitors are created equally. I do think that there are differences, um, you know, between the PARP inhibitors. Yeah. Okay. What else? Anything else for, for urothelial? No, those are kind of the main four studies, I think, for urothelial um, to highlight. Okay, time for the beans, for the kidneys, and then... The kidneys. You know, who knows if we, if we get a guest, uh, guest appearance of somebody in pajamas. I'm not, I can't guarantee that. <laughs> yes, and, and we also, I have to say, we, we have to uh, highlight one of the adrenocortical carcinoma studies. Yes. Because um, I know that that's really an unmet need. So I think with regards to kidney, I think we saw um, extended follow-up data uh, 30-month follow-up from Keynote 564 that were presented by Tony Shawiri. As um, you recall, the Keynote 564 trial was an adjuvant study looking at adjuvant pembrolizumab for one year versus placebo for patients that were post-nephrectomy. Um, and it enrolled patients with clear cell RCC, and it enrolled a very heterogeneous patient population. Patients could have enrolled if they had PT2 grade 4 all the, all the way to, you know, M1 NED. So you get T3, T4, N1, and then M1 NED could enroll. So like very heterogeneous group of patients enrolled. The primary endpoint was DFS per investigator assessment. And um, we saw sort of um, an additional six months of follow-up data from the initial data that were presented at ASCO last year during the plenary session. And, you know, um, Tony presented a, this is how it's, this is how it was, and this is how it's going kind of presentation. So the hazard ratio um, for DFS um, at the 24 month uh, time point was 0.68. And with additional updated um, follow-up, you know, holding steady at 0 0.63. So it's exciting to see that the DFS is still um, holding steady. We also saw the data broken out by uh, risk groups. So for the intermediate and high risk group, the high risk group and the M1 NED group, keeping in mind the intermediate to high risk group were those patients that were basically T2, T3, high risk was T4, N1, and then the M1 NED. And the hazard ratios were, you know, 0 0.68, 0 0.60, and then really dramatic benefit for the M1 NED, 0 0.28. But no, and then, no survival benefit yet. Not yet. It's still pretty early. So I think I think at this juncture there was thirty three percent of events uh, had occurred for OS. So you know the curves. There's a lot of censoring, and I think why there's a lot of censoring is because patients are still alive. So um, you know there's not there's you know only thirty three percent. It's a good problem. It's a good problem. Yeah, very good problem. So the hazard ratio was at 0.52 and an initial presentation 0.54. So I think, you know, it's still early. I think how do we, you know, since the, uh, uh, the ASCO um, plenary session, pembrolizumab has been FDA approved for use in the adjuvant setting. I think some um, people are kind of still holding out for some additional OS data. And you can't help it when you look at this data set. I mean, I think this was a positive trial, but there are probably some people that are getting over-treated. There are probably some people that are getting under-treated. If we think about frontline RCC, patients getting doublet therapy in the frontline space. So I think really understanding who are the patients who we have the ability to prevent recurrences in and truly cure them with Pembro versus just delaying 
uh, time to metastasis developing. But you know, Rana, I mean, I, I think the, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but conceptually, in anytime you decide on giving adjuvant therapy, you are going to overtreat yes. some people to benefit a smaller portion. I think in any disease, I wish, I hope, actually, we can get to a point where you can tell a patient in the eye and say, look, you are not going to benefit from adjuvant therapy versus the other. I have a feeling that we will always, unfortunately, overtreat some people in the adjuvant setting. Completely agree with you. I mean, that is by nature what what yeah. is the crux of adjuvant therapy. But could there be a, you know, I think we can certainly learn from other diseases like, um, you know, uh, breast cancer, other, like, could there be a molecular classifier where, yeah. you know, if you're high risk, then you're going to derive, not just high risk for recurrence, but you're high risk and predicted to respond, you know? So could there be like a decipher of kidney right. cancer that could be applied not to ADT, but to IO? Right. So that would be really cool. That would be absolutely what, what we will need. Okay. <laughs> we've gotten, we've gotten the, uh, the uh, Pembro adjuvant out of the way. Yeah, so now I think the other data worthwhile highlighting, data presented by Axel Bex on a study looking at neoadjuvant um, excitinib and um, uh, avulamab prior to nephrectomy. So patients were uh, enrolled if they had really here a wide spectrum, so to clinical T1B um, grade four all the way to N1 that was deemed to be resectable. Um, and patients received um, about 12 weeks worth of therapy. Um, I'm sorry, they received, um, yeah, 12 weeks worth of therapy. There was a, there was a, there was a opportunity to scan midway through. And if there was evidence of disease progression, they could go straight to therapy. They could go straight to surgery. So, um, but in essence, I think as we look at the primary endpoint, which was a response endpoint, we saw um, downstaging that was seen in the bulk of the tumors that were enrolled. Um, and I think 30% of patients had a partial response uh, to treatment. Um, and then the DFS data with a median follow-up of about two years, I, you know, I think there was a DFS signal but yeah, I'm, the, uh, number, the, yeah. number, the numbers by themselves may not really matter, but, but there's yeah. a suggestion that maybe there's an improvement there. Yeah. Possibly. That, I mean, these two are not practice changing right now because we already no. remember. Okay. Anything else in, in kidneys? So those were the two like clinical data. We did present data from um, a collaboration with Keras looking at uh, sites of METs and molecular signatures across sites of METs and very interesting data of over 650 tumor samples that underwent either whole exome or panel sequencing, whole transcriptome sequencing on everybody and pdl one status on everybody. And in essence, while we did find that there are some key mutations that are preserved between primary and um, sites of metastases, there are differences observed between sites with regards to PBRM1 status, SETD2, KDM5C. Additionally, we applied the um, uh, Mozart gene signatures and molecular subgroups from the Emotion 151 data to this data set and have really refined those signatures to real world application because this is really the real world here, and demonstrated that the distribution of the different um, subgroups really differed based on sites of METs relative to the kidney, with lung, bone, liver, skin, and GI all being statistically significantly different from the kidney. Yeah. And I think this is important because as we are moving towards more biomarker-based strategies or the potential for biomarker-based strategies in RCC, I think we need to understand, you know, the just like the heterogeneity that's there. You can't escape it, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, you, know you, you could treat a kidney cancer with bone metastases different than kidney cancer with liver metastases. Basically. You absolutely could, yeah. yeah. 
So the data are certainly, um, you know, exciting. Um, that was, I, that was you, you were the first author on that. So for listeners to know that you, you present on behalf of your, your collaboration. What else do you have? So the last study, maybe I'll mention, just because I think this is a disease that is, has been so difficult to treat, was the first randomized trial of adjuvant mitotane in adrenocortical carcinoma. Um, so these data were presented. I mean, this was a magnanimous feat. Um, this disease is incredibly rare, um, literally one in a million, um, you know, incidents um, for this disease. And, you know, there's really not a lot of effective systemic therapy strategies for this disease. I think the data that we had thus far for mitotain were largely derived from retrospective series. And this disease is largely treated with surgery. Um, what's unique about this study was that it actually enrolled low to intermediate risk individuals as opposed to enrolling, you know, high risk individuals um, to receive adjuvant mitotain. So it was low intermediate risk. They had stage one or three disease, had a R0 resection, low KI67. And patients were randomized to observation versus adjuvant mitotain, targeting mitotain plasma levels between 14 to 20 for at least two years. Um, so in essence, I think the take home from this study was, um, you know, the sample size was 50% of the planned accrual rate um, because of really the fact that this is just such a rare patient population. This was an international effort to accrue to this trial. But actually that this, this stage one to three group um, with R0 resection, low KI67 actually had a relatively good prognosis uh, with 25% risk of relapse and 15% risk of death at five years you know, but they did not seem to derive benefit from adjuvant mitotain. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's hard to draw conclusions because of the number of events and the small sample size, but I just, you know, these studies are hard to, to do. They take a, almost a decade to complete with, you know, international, you know, um, uh, input. So I think it's worthwhile highlighting. Um, I think these rare tumors are the ones that really benefit from uh, just understanding their molecular underpinning, because to your mm -hmm. point, not only they're rare histologically and the treatments are not, not good. So to get a trial and enroll and randomize and so forth will take forever. So having the molecular understanding of these rare tumors and then seeing if there's a target therapy will always, uh, will always help. What's uh, what what's what's to come? Like, what's your um, you know? What, what, first of all, you know, we this episode will air obviously a couple of months before ASCO. We may see some updates. I guess we'll we'll have to see for what what's been presented. But um, um, you know, what's uh, anything specific that in, intrigued you or surprised you or as we uh, as we uh, part ways and finish this uh, podcast. No, I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting trials in progress that are currently ongoing that are going to further inform the field. Um, you know, I think a uh, big one is, as we think of prostate, you know, what's going to happen with lutetium PSMA. Uh, we're all eagerly awaiting what's going to be the FDA decision around that. Um, you know, who's going to be the, who are going to be the patients that derive benefit. Um, there is a study that's going to be looking at uh, lutetium in the pre chemotherapy setting, because Vision looked at it in the post-chemotherapy. Um, PSMA addition is going to be looking at lutetium in the hormone-sensitive setting. So I think that's going to be interesting. Um, we're also, you know, everybody's in interested and in, there's going to be a series of trials that are getting conducted looking at metastasis-directed therapy in the context of um, prostate cancer that's driven by PSMA imaging. So I think you know, that's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how those trials unfold. With regards to kidney, we're going to be looking into triplets, you know, Nevo, uh, Ipi, Cabo, the Cosmic 313 study, hopefully um, sometime over, you know, I'm not certain, maybe a year or two that's going to be reported out. We're all eagerly awaiting the results of that trial that's completed accrual. Um, you know, Contact 3 has completed accrual. That's looking at 
Cabo uh, um, plus minus atezolizumab in the second line setting um, in RCC. So, you know, these are all where it's interesting and exciting to see us moving into combinations, you know, no, we're kind of moving away from sequential single agent therapy, you know, and my, my, my last question to you, I promise it's my last question because it's really, it bugs me and I don't know what the right answer to it. So as we are using a lot of these, um, I will call, I'm going to call it the kitchen sink in, in hormone sensitive prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. How do you see, um, the treatment of castrate resistant disease evolving? Because I'm just trying to think if I'm gonna use ADT, DOSI and an Abbey, maybe I'll throw some radium in there as well. Like <laughs> I'm just trying to think, I mean, does this mean that the clone that will emerge that is castrate resistant is just completely gonna be refractory to all of these? I'm gonna need to completely start thinking completely newer therapies. I mean, how, how are we starting to think of, even you're a clinical trialist. I mean, you design yeah. these trials. I mean, I, it's, it's again, it's a good problem to have. I just have no idea how would you design a study now in CRPC, it's so difficult. Yeah, no, I hear you. I think we need, we need new drugs and we need new targets. And so um, I, I'm gonna put a, a plug in here. Misha Beltran, who's absolutely spectacular and wonderful uh, colleague and friend uh, from the Dana-Farber. Um, we're working on a study called PREDICT that's going to be run through the Alliance. And this is a, a platform trial in CRPC uh, umbrella study, phase two, that's biomarker driven, akin to MATCH. But as you know, MATCH has, there are unmet needs for MATCH with regards to men with prostate cancer with bone predominant disease, where we are using DNA and RNA for arm allocation in a biomarker based you know, strategy approach. There's multiple arms, um, multiple drugs. Um, and so I think that the hope is that we will move into a strategy like that. Oh my goodness. And then, and then we get, uh, and then we get Tony Schwery. Look at this. Literally in his pajamas from the Boston, from the, from Boston. Uh, Amazing. Dr. Schwery, you're That's... making like a guest appearance on the healthcare unfiltered. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I can't uh, see Dr. McKay. It's amazing. Are you wearing a big, huge, can two people fit into that sweatshirt? Yeah. <laughs> just doing some, I love some uh, reading. Baby, baby Yoda's. He's good. I think, I think yeah. my kids have that same thing. Yeah. Baby Yoda says hi to uh, the podcast here. You know, the uh, healthcare unfiltered. Tony, before, before you, uh, we've been talking for a while. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we talked about running. Yeah, uh, I, I think we need to start uh, running, me and you, because Rana has done six marathons, and every Sunday she does half a marathon. Tony, no, running with Rana is is not possible. This is maybe in the next life, not in this life. I mean, you you're just gonna get a defibrillator. Running with her, like she would run way and back. She would oh, do it two right. three I'll, times. I'll just uh, I'll. Uh... You guys can run. I'll I'll bring the double stroller. We'll walk. The double we'll stroller walk. really slows me down. I'm like very slow with the double. We'll stroller. walk. We'll walk. <laughs> Tony, we, we were doing. Uh, we were talking about you know highlights of ASCO GU. We we did a lot. We talked about prostate. We talked about urothelial. We talked about kidney, and we talked we we talked about the data that you presented, the Pembro data, um, and um, and and then we were trying to think like themes, like how. You know, as somebody who's watching you guys doing amazing things in GU oncology, I'm trying to think that the design of clinical trials must become so complicated because all of these therapies are being used. So I was asking Rana just as you joined, and I'm curious also your thoughts, like, you know, in hormone sensitive prostate cancer, we're almost using everything up front now. I mean, you know, so does this mean the CRPC is going to be impossible to treat if you already used Abby and, and ADT and Dosi and, and, and in the front line, hormone sensitive? And Rana was commenting on this, and then maybe I'll hear your thoughts. Rana, what you were talking about? Well, yeah, I was, I was commenting about PREDICT, but I, honestly, I think the field is going to be moving away from this nomenclature of hormone sensitive and CRPC and basically moving into first line, second line, third line, and trying to actually peel back this sort of 
not to say somewhat archaic nomenclature, I think it's it's probably largely driven by regulatory authorities too, because that's where we see kind of indications for different drugs, but kind of actually moving away from, from that approach, um, because I think it's different, you know? Because somebody yeah. who's like hormone set, somebody who's CRPC, who only saw dosi, you know, they're, they're different than somebody who's CRPC, who didn't see dosi, but saw, and it, so it's like confusing. I think we're going to be moving away from the current nomenclature. At some point, maybe, I, I think, you know, a bit it's worrisome. You have all these drugs at the same time, three, four, who knows what's next. As long as they're tolerated, they're moved to the, moving to the upfront. We're saying same thing in renal cell cancer. And there is a big push to stay away from chemotherapy. And still chemotherapy, you know, is active in, in, in prostate cancer, in bladder cancer, but there's a move away from it. We don't have the same problem in renal cells, but we have the same issue of maximizing drug uh, therapies from one drug to two drugs. Now we have, we have two trials with three drugs. And if they're positive, though, I would, I would argue that once you add more and more drugs, I think there'll be a push toward having overall survival. The trial is are powered enough. So I think with three or four drugs, people kind of be looking at overall survival. They may not be satisfied with progression-free survival only. It's just that it's just like, you know, it makes you wonder if, if I have a hormone sensitive patient and I do ADT, <laughs> Dosi, Abby, and I was telling Rana, I'll throw a sprinkle of radium 223 on that a little bit, like here and there, just a little bit. By the time this unfortunately becomes CRPC, that clone is not going to respond to anything. It's possible, Rana will tell you that, uh, you know, we're seeing now, we saw it post. And the Abbey, et cetera, there is an emergence of neuroendocrine um, yeah. tumors, yeah. whether it's because this is the only clone that is not attacked, the therapy has something to do with it, but it is, you know, not getting uh, simple. But uh, the trials are evolving and evolving very, very fast. So, you know, uh, Rana, Tony, as he's making a guest appearance, we're not going to ask him about the science, right? Because we got discovered, me and you. And Tony, as you know, has become a social media star. I don't know if you noticed that. His, you know. yes. So, Tony, how, how did you see social media's engagement in ASCOG? What were your thoughts about the hybrid approach? Uh, give us some... Uh, insights. I don't know if it's star or what. I mean, you and I post a lot about food. Yes, um, I, yeah. I post about food. Every so often you do science. I do more food than science. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. And, and your food choices. I mean, I want to see something that is, you know, homemade rather from Costco. Okay, but, okay. But Mister, I posted about a cucumber and a radish. Cucumber and radish. Have you have you, <laughs> have you seen have you seen your last one? You put literally two cucumbers. He put, maybe he had a carrot or something, right? He had a, like, I mean, a cucumber I'm, radish with some green sauce that was not guacamole. What was that sauce? green sauce. I have no idea. I start <laughs> reading because people text me. It's like, what's that sauce? I start reading. And after the seventh ingredient, I stop. It's something that tastes something. But, you know, I mean, between Zooms, what, what do you have? So I, I don't know. I think, I think with the pandemic, I would argue that the social media and learning through social media, Twitter and, and other has accelerated. Remains to be seen if we go back to normal in the next year or two, how are we gonna do social media? We had, you know, I mean, we had about close to 800 people, 800, 900 people, I think at AskWGU. So next oh, yeah. year, next year, uh, Rana will, will, uh, will, will be in San Francisco. They, if you are both together here at ASCO, I promise you very nice home cooked meal that oh, I will yeah. not, I will have no idea how to do. It will be my mother just telling you. I mean, it's amazing. We will go. We'll Tony, invite ourselves. Tony, be careful. You know how it works. You can't criticize the food of my mother. I mean, even if it's no. bad, you have to say it's great. <laughs> it's a death sentence. It will you not, there's no it. such thing as. Uh, a Lebanese mother making bad food. It doesn't exist. It's, it, it does not, it's impossible. Yeah, the, the, the tabbouleh and the kibbeh are my favorite always. Well, you know, yeah, I, you're right. You know what? 
I do post about food, but uh, Tony, every so often I post something like wise. Um, like I'm thinking, I just saw a quote I decided to post. I'm going to, it's by Socrates. The only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. I think I'm going to put that on right now and uh, let's see how Twitter reacts. <laughs> you should, you should, you should. Just use Google more often. <laughs> You take care, guys. This is nice. It was, it awesome. was great. It Bye. was great to see you. Thank you, Tony. Guest appearance take by care. Tony Schwery. It's like you know, having you know somebody just came in to us from uh, from Boston. Nice to see you, buddy. Why resting? Bye. Bye. <laughs> he is. He does look too well rested, frankly. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. So look, we covered prostate, we covered kidney, we covered bladder, covered rare tumors. Anything else we missed? Uh, we're doing okay there. No, we did. It was a great meeting. I think it was the first meeting where most people, the GU community was back together um, since uh, GU ASCO, what was it, 2020? Yeah. So um, it was very nice. I think uh, definitely missed it, but I I, I felt like I was uh, there through the virtual platform, you which were. made the presence uh, really great. You were, and your uh, your oral session uh, virtual uh, was virtual, but we felt you were right there. Ronna McKay, Dr. Ronna McKay, thank you so much for always being available and coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. You are an amazing and a wonderful friend awesome. of the show, and I can't wait to see you next time. Awesome, thank you. Take care. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support and being here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter or by sending me an email or by visiting my website and emailing me. My website is www.shadinabhan.com. I hope you like the show. Please subscribe to the show, rate the show, refer a friend or a colleague to the show. And don't forget to watch all of these episodes as they appear on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Socrates. And Socrates once said, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Until next time, take care.